everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations. I've also had the opportunity to live outside the U.S. for a number of years, which I think puts me in a good position to comment for my American audience on some events of note going on outside the country and to interpret for my, I'm pleased to say, growing non-American audience just what the hell's going on in American politics. So, welcome to the third and, I think, final installment of this little For the People miniseries. Named thus, as I'm sure you realized in the last episode, for the package of democracy reform legislation that the Democrats are trying to get through Congress. Speaking of that last episode, if you haven't yet heard the previous two pods with For the People in the title, I'm going to recommend that you pause this right now, go listen to them before circling back to this one. I'm going to try to be as coherent as ever here, but uh, I think a lot of what I talk about in this third installment will make a lot more sense uh, having listened to the previous two. So, to quickly recap, Democrats in Congress are, as we speak, working hard to pass a package of democracy reforms, which would seek to make America a bit more fairly representative than it is by among other things, uh, shedding a bit of light on money and politics, as well as making it more difficult for partisan politicians to both suppress the votes of people they don't think will support them, and beyond that, essentially pick their own voters through the absurd congressional redistricting process. Now, why are these things so important? Well, uh, as much as America prides itself on its history as the world's premier modern democracy, and the idea that our government's you know, at least somewhat accurately reflects what the people want, the U.S. political system is at this point less accurately representative of what our people want than just about any other industrialized democracy. And don't Americans deserve a shot at the, I don't know, the, the Italian dream? Never missing a chance to scam their way into a little more political power, the Republicans have, of course, taken advantage of a few flaws in American democracy and worked hard to really exacerbate them to their own benefit. Now, I could apply this argument to a number of things, but I'm going to again highlight two of them here right now. The first of these is gerrymandering. Since this is kind of a once-every-ten-year thing, and that once-in-a-decade moment is, in fact, right around the corner, this is one horse, dead or alive, that I'm definitely going to continue to beat. As I've talked about in a couple of previous episodes, including this little For the People miniseries, Gerrymandering is the deliberate drawing of congressional districts by the state legislature to ensure that their preferred party is able to win the most number of seats in Congress, regardless of how many people actually voted for each party. This happens every decade, well, rather, the redistricting process uh, happens once every decade after the census, a rather shoddy version of which, in fact, just wrapped up, meaning that in the next two years state legislatures will be working to draw new congressional districts. In an earlier episode that I put out right before the election, I experienced a temporary fit of optimism and dared to dream of a scenario in which the Democrats did really well in state legislature elections and were able to retaliate to the absolutely shameless Republican gerrymander from a decade ago with some gerrymandering of our own, so as to both get even and, by doing so, make gerrymandering more of a bipartisan problem to be solved bipartisanly rather than a weapon to be wielded by one party against another that's structurally disadvantaged. But for whatever reason, despite Joe Biden having won at the top of the ticket, Democrats didn't make any gains in state legislatures at all, 
which continue to be dominated by Republicans. I'm now working extremely hard to hold in the snark that I so want to direct at a number of those that I blame for the Democrats way worse than it should have been down-ticket performance. I'll restrain myself and just say that's among a number of reasons why the blue team maybe didn't do as well as expected. Swing voters would prefer that the movie The Purge remained a work of fiction, or at least that's what Democratic representatives running in tough districts say their voters frequently told them. So then, scaring the crap out of those voters with a poorly conceived slogan in the months leading up to an election is maybe a bad idea if you like winning. Just a thought. In any case, those Republicans who, again, for whatever reason we failed to unseat in state legislatures are now, naturally, getting ready to serve us an even worse gerrymander than back in 2010. Despite winning even less of the vote this time, quite probably locking in another decade of total Republican control of the House, which is, you know, bad. The second issue that I wanted to just again highlight after gerrymandering is voter suppression. Now, I had discussed pre-existing voter suppression measures before the election, uh, but now that they've lost the election and lost in states like Georgia and Arizona, which they control, the Republicans are coming back with a vengeance. The Global Chair of Democrats Abroad and I discussed the Georgia law in a decent bit of our interview in the previous episode, and a bunch of other Republican states are getting ready to pass similar measures to restrict the vote in their states. Look, bottom line, the Republicans are now pretty openly an anti-democracy party. I've talked in previous episodes, see, especially the Democrats versus the anti-Democrats and Can American Democracy Survive 2020, about the increasing evidence that the Republicans are completely done, really, with the idea of democracy. And that was even before they lost the election, and then refused to accept the results, and then spent weeks on an absurd attempt to overturn the election in Congress, even after a violent mob of their own supporters stormed the Capitol, rubbed their own shit on the walls, and killed a cop. Oh, and have you heard about how the Republicans in Arizona in the Arizona legislature are now straight up turning over the ballots from the last election to some QAnon conspiracy theorist group to do an uh, audit, an official audit, in which they're almost certain to find that Biden's election was the result of a conspiracy by lizard people, George Soros, Antifa, and the Illuminati, all of which would throw more fuel on the fire of their big lie that Biden, who won the election by more than 7 million votes, somehow stole the election. It's very possible that if the Republicans take back the House in 2022, which is, you know, not exactly like beyond the realm of possibility if passed as prologue, in 2024, a Republican-controlled U.S. House could attempt to actually pull off what they appeared to try this time and overturn the election. Now, here's the thing. For these traitors to American democracy to have voted after the 2020 election to overturn the results had no real impact since they were in the minority. You know, besides, of course, giving rhetorical ammunition to a, bo- a mob of violent insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol. Famously not that bright, though Republican House leader Kevin McCarthy may be, he and probably most of the other roughly 150 morons in Congress knew full well that they didn't have the power this time to actually overturn the election. They pulled this stunt as a middle finger to Joe Biden for the short-term personal political gain of looking tough, looking like you extra hate the commie, libtard snowflakes. The problem is, by doing this, 
And then by attacking the few more intellectually honest Republican members, like, I can't believe I'm saying this, Liz Cheney, who voted against this sham, they've trained their voters, some of whom probably were less clear on the fact that it was a farce, to think that this is normal. This means that even if some of these folks did it just because they wanted the short-term political sugar high or were afraid of taking the kind of crap that Liz Cheney and others like her are now taking, next time, their voters are going to expect the same behavior when it could actually have an effect. Now, that's, of course, incredibly undemocratic and an insult to basic American values, but, you know, there you are. We absolutely shouldn't put it past the modern Republican Party since they've already tried it. With the exception of 2004, no Republican has been elected president by a plurality of the American people since 1988. Although Republicans famously reject science and math in a number of contexts, they can count. American democracy does not favor them right now, and as I say, they really do appear to have basically just given up on it. Historically, when one of the parties loses popularity, they try to evolve to meet the voters where they are. But today's Republicans appear to have decided to instead lock in as much power as possible so they can choke democracy and cement a minority rule for as long as they can. Getting the For the People Act passed would stop at least some of these attempts to scam American democracy in their tracks and is critical to preserving American democracy, however flawed it may be. So, for all the reasons I mentioned, and a bunch of other ones, the Republicans are all in to oppose these reforms. Even the few Republicans having their little moment of decency for admitting the basic objective reality that Joe Biden won the election are, for the most part, totally fine with various forms of voter suppression, gerrymandering, money in politics, etc., or they just object for some other reason to making changes to the system in order to make it easier for people to vote. It's extremely unlikely that we're going to find any Republican votes to help us pass this thing. Uh, but then, you may ask, why don't the Democrats just pass it on their own? They control, albeit narrowly, both houses of Congress. So I'm going to take a quick break on that cliffhanger and come back on the other side with the long-ish answer. Hey folks, before the episode continues, I just want to take a second to ask you if you haven't already, please, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. Then after you do that, hit the little button next to it with the three dots or whatever it is on your preferred platform, hit share, and spam that link out to everybody you can think of. That way you don't miss an episode, and it really does help get the show off the ground, which I appreciate very much. Alright, back to it. The answer to why the Democrats can't just use their congressional majorities to save American democracy by passing the For the People Act lies in a thing called the filibuster. In modern times, the filibuster basically means that virtually any legislation that doesn't have to do with passing a budget requires not 51, but 60 votes to pass the Senate. That wasn't always this way. It used to be that in order to filibuster, a senator or small group of senators would have to continuously hold the floor. This meant physically standing on the Senate floor without bathroom breaks, having to publicly represent yourself as being willing to grind all other Senate business to a halt because you're so opposed to an individual piece of legislation. In short, you had to make an actual effort. There was a, a, a real cost to doing this. It wasn't something that was done very often. But then, a few decades ago, the Senate changed the rules so that all that was required was for one senator to anonymously declare an intent to filibuster, and voila, a bill now needs 60 votes to pass instead of 51. 
President Obama, in his book that just came out, actually expresses a wish that he had pushed Democrats in the Senate to axe the filibuster during his first term. Can you just get rid of Senate rules like that, you ask? Yes, it turns out the filibuster isn't a law anywhere. All it takes to change Senate rules is for a majority of senators to want to change them. In fact, uh, when the Republicans decided they were going to start using the filibuster to block President Obama from even being able to appoint members of his own cabinet, the Democratic leader in the Senate, Harry Reid, got rid of the filibuster for cabinet appointments. When Trump became president, the Republicans got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations, since they'd effectively just stolen a Supreme Court seat from Obama and now wanted to fill it with some robot from the Federalist Society. But although the filibuster has basically been eliminated in the context of the Senate confirming presidential appointments, it's still in place for when it comes to passing actual laws, again, with the exception of certain budget resolutions. And the question of getting rid of it in this context is one that scares a lot of people. In particular, as Julia and I referenced in the previous episode, Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Both of these folks are extremely moderate Democrats, especially Manchin, who, in his defense, is from one of the Trumpiest states in the country, and unfortunately for us, often votes like it. Uh, both have expressed varying degrees of opposition to getting rid of the filibuster, and there are likely some other Democratic senators who are also a bit squishy about getting rid of it. People I know and respect who are substantial players in the Democratic Party have privately expressed their own reservations to me about doing away with the filibuster, and I'm honestly a little iffy on totally getting rid of it myself. So why the hesitancy? Couple reasons. Well, I see two broad groups of reasons, the first of which are institutional arguments. For example, the filibuster has been around for a while, and some argue that it's a tradition and that it encourages bipartisanship. I actually think that there's some substantial evidence to suggest that it has the opposite effect, but okay. Some argue that if it's done away with, laws will just swing massively back and forth every time the chamber changes hands. <laughs> or put another way, you mean elections would have consequences? I joke, but this isn't a completely absurd argument in the context of stability. I just think it could also be argued pretty convincingly uh, in the opposite direction that this will just mean that people have to actually think about what will happen if they vote a certain way. There's also certainly no evidence to suggest that the framers ever intended for the Senate to be some sort of tyranny of the minority. The other argument against blowing up the filibuster, at least from a Democratic Party perspective, is political. Now, as I talked about in the first of these For the People episodes, the Senate is completely unrepresentative of the American people and at the moment is absurdly unfair to Democrats. About 20 million more people voted for the 50 Democrats that are in the Senate right now than voted for the 50 Republicans. With the way things are going, with Democrats winning in states with large populations while Republicans now dominate most of the states where nobody lives. No, I'm just kidding. I see you, Wyomingites. I know you're there. Democrats could be on track to be permanently in the minority in the Senate, despite having, again, almost certainly won tens of millions more votes than their Republican counterparts. Now, as a little sidebar to the broader discussion about what to do with the filibuster, there are two things that I can think of that Democrats could do to lighten the burden of those political problems. One, as I suggested in the previous two episodes, is to give the American citizens of D.C. and Puerto Rico, for starters, the same right to representation enjoyed by other Americans. Another, and I recognize that I'm kicking a bit of a hornet's nest here, is for the Democrats to try to and also encourage our activist base on the more hardcore left similarly to try 
a little bit harder to watch Portlandia as parody rather than inspiration, and not dive quite so enthusiastically into obnoxious culture war virtue signaling wokier than thou stuff that polls show alienate a whole lot of working class voters of all ethnicities. Yes, polls show, not just the white ones and non-coastal elite types who live in low-population states that we used to be able to win, so that we could maybe start winning them again. Put another way, there's a reason that wild Democrats were busy passing the wildly popular COVID-19 relief bill, Republicans didn't mount serious opposition to the bill, which was again extremely popular, but rather attempted to change the subject to Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. This culture war stuff is not good for us liberals if we want to win elections. I honestly don't know which would be harder. Taking the awkward, as I just demonstrated, uh, but I think necessary steps to win back seats in states where the Democratic brand has become toxic, or getting D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood, which, again, to be clear, should happen regardless. Or I guess a third option would be to just colonize our way out of the problem by starting a mass campaign to relocate people from Brooklyn and Tacoma Park to Wyoming and the Dakotas. Bottom line, with the Democrats facing a fairly hostile Senate map, some people, understandably, have real political concerns uh, about doing away with the tool that empowers the minority. But on the other hand, from that same political standpoint, that filibuster that we would hide behind when we're in the minority is what's now standing in the way of passing some reforms to save our democracy from a bunch of bad stuff that also had the effect of putting us in the minority in the first place. Put another way, the key to Democrats being less victim to a cycle in which they're stuck in the minority despite majority support might in fact be giving up one of the tools that we would have had if we were stuck in the minority. Also, besides the political arguments, the filibuster really is a relic of Jim Crow. It was famously used to block a whole bunch of legislation to promote civil rights, and now it's an absolute cancer on American democracy, making an institution, the Senate, which is already, as it is, a mockery of the concepts of majority rule and one person, one vote, even more detached from the will of the American voter than it already is. If ever there was a time to eliminate the filibuster, it's on this issue of, like, literally saving our very democracy. Hell, we don't even necessarily have to completely scrap it. There are a number of ideas for reforming the filibuster that could have the effect of making it possible to pass more legislation, or at least creating more accountability for senators who use it to block popular stuff, which polls show the For the People Act really is, even among a number of Republican voters. Maybe just go back to the way it was before, where a senator has to actually stand up there and do the work. Why not make them have to actually talk and publicly take a stand? As it is right now, as I mentioned, all it takes is for one senator to anonymously say they're going to filibuster, and then for the bill to pass, the majority has to go out and find 60 senators to bring in to end the filibuster. We could at least put the burden on those filibustering to get 40 senators to sustain their efforts to block the legislation rather than requiring supermajorities to pass any goddamn bills. But as of right now, Senator Manchin, the Democrats' 50th vote, is not convinced. Democrats have hoped that he would come around as the Republicans of the Senate prevent good things that have passed in the House from becoming law. Things like police reform, things like D.C. statehood, like union protections, like a $15 minimum wage like the DREAM Act to protect young undocumented immigrants, like the For the People Act. But Manchin has thus far uh, not changed his mind, although he sure does keep us guessing. 
Whether he will come around is one of the biggest political questions in Washington. He's expressed openness to changes in the filibuster to, I think he said, make it hurt a little more. I believe he said something indicating an openness to maybe returning to a talking filibuster. But then he put out an op-ed in the Washington Post in which he serenaded us all with a holier-than-thou acclamation of the importance of bipartisanship and optimistically predicted that there are parts of the For the People Act that could actually win bipartisan congressional support. To which a bunch of us rolled our eyes and said, Okay, Senator, then please show us the ten Republicans who will vote to pass a law that would protect American democracy if it comes at the expense of their own unfair political advantage. Spoiler alert, there are none. None! Somehow, a U.S. senator has failed to notice that one of our two political parties decided a while back that their best strategy was open war, total opposition. As much as Manchin wants to be serving in the Senate as several decades ago, as he imagines it, where they all debated as individuals and set aside party labels and worked together on grand compromises to solve America's problems, that Senate does not exist, at least not now, and certainly not in Mitch McConnell's Republican conference. Manchin's friends, Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, are alone. I don't know, maybe also Mitt Romney. What remains, then, is to basically wonder if there's any flexibility in Manchin's position, based on what he's said and written. Probably the biggest question is whether or not Manchin believes that reforms like returning to the talking filibuster, for example, for which he appears to have indicated some support at some point, count as, as he said in his op-ed, quote, weakening, unquote, the filibuster. Now, if you can be convinced that no, in fact, the act of doing the work and holding the floor and all that stuff is part of the filibuster's grand tradition as a Senate tactic and what makes it so super special, then we might be in business. But if not, at least for this Congress, America can kiss any prospect of protecting our democracy goodbye. Along with D.C. statehood, police reform, marijuana legalization, anything big on climate, gun safety, the minimum wage, and a bunch of other stuff. And it's worth noting that even if Senator Manchin does eventually come around, it may end up being too late for For the People to pass and be effectively implemented before the next elections, meaning that the Republicans will then have been able to game the electoral system so that it favors them even more than it already does. If that happens, the Democrats will, as Julia said in the end of our interview, have to fight Republican election rigging on a state-by-state -state basis. And then, in the next elections, we'll have to fight with everything we have to not lose the House, as history and current patterns indicate we are likely to, and expand our majority in the Senate, so that we're not constantly in the position of relying on one senator in our party who sometimes just seems to exist to frustrate the rest of us, and who, in his defense, happens to represent a state that Trump won by like 40 points. No, that's not an exaggeration. It's easy to sometimes get exhausted by what feels like the futility of pushing back on huge structural problems in American democracy. Or maybe to get distracted by temporary good news. As President Biden reaches 100 days in office, for example, he and his people are kicking ass and giving shots. America is starting to feel like America again. The administration has notched some huge policy wins, and we should all be very happy about them. But all that grinds to a halt if we don't protect the gains we've made and expand them. The shark that is Trumpism and Republican threats to our democracy isn't dead, it's just swum away from the beach for a little, and so far we haven't, like, put up any nets or something. Okay, I give up on the metaphor. What I mean to say is, 
we can't let the fact that we dodged a bullet in 2020 and the fact that Biden is doing a great job distract from the very real threats that continue to exist to the stability of American democracy. This fight is not even close to over. <sighs> One of these episodes, I'm going to lighten things up. I'm going to talk about travel, TV shows, the Kardashians. Wait, no, just kidding. One of them's running for governor of California. All right, that's it for this episode of OK Talks. And I believe for now, it concludes this little multi-part for the people thing. I hope you enjoyed my optimistic look with Democrats abroad President Julia Bryan at the ways in which we could make America a better democracy, and of course, my more pessimistic ruminating about what'll happen if we don't. If you haven't already, please take a second to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and share it on social media, my carrier pigeon, really anywhere you get the word out. I really do appreciate it. As always, I'd like to thank my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork. Until the next episode, thanks so much for listening. Music